If you're a single person and you're carrying a smartphone with you, you essentially have a 24-7 singles bar in your pocket. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Eric Kleinenberg is a sociology professor at New York University. He co-wrote the book Modern Romance. It investigates dating in the digital age. How have apps like Tinder and websites like Match changed the culture of finding love? If we're in a relationship, how do we stay interested when so many choices are at our fingertips? Technology's toll on intimacy in today's show. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Not long ago, people were finding their spouse just down the street in their neighborhood. Kleinenberg and co-author Aziz Ansari write that families would meet, the couple would marry, and have a kid, all by the time they reached age 24. People marry later now and spend significant time trying to find their soulmate. Is technology helping in that quest or hurting? Do we have too many options now? And does technology make it easier to cheat? Kleinenberg sits down with Match.com's chief scientific advisor, Helen Fisher, and Christy Hefner, former CEO of Playboy Enterprises. Fisher starts the conversation. In her research, she has used brain scanners to study couples. She says sexual desire, romantic love, and attachment are powerful biological drives. They come from the most ancient parts of the brain, and they are not going to change whether you sweep left or right on Tinder. They're not going to change whether you meet the guy next door or you meet him on Match.com. They are not going to change. They evolved millions of years ago, and they are with us now. And I can say that, uh, I mean, we've put people in the machine who've met somebody on, on um dating sites, and we've put people in the machine who've, who've met somebody next door. These, these aren't going to change. These brain systems are like the fear system and the anger system. But just like um, Eric said, um, courtship is changing in America. There's no question about it that uh, meeting through email and trying to decide. We ask on, on this Match.com survey, what is a date? And they don't, can't even describe what a date is anymore. It's dramatically changing. But even with all of the changes that we have today, and they seem rather spectacular, I don't think they hold a candle to what happened in the late 1940s and early 50s when the automobile became stylish. Suddenly we had a rolling bedroom, for God's sakes. Is that the same as a sweeping left and right on Tinder? And how about, uh, uh, how about the introduction of the contraception pill in the 1970s? unchained from uh, millions of years of worrying about pregnancy and social shame, uh, American and women around the world could suddenly express their sexuality. I do not find that this particular revolution uh, in the dating world uh, is, is terribly significant. And just like you said, I introduced to match that. I walked into the president's office. I seem to be their institutional memory. I've been there 11 years. I've gone through seven presidents, and I said to every single one of them, you are not, you do not have a dating service. You are introducing people to each other. You're not, we're not dating. We're, we're introducing people to each other. And they all agree with me. Uh, and once you've met on Tinder, on Match, um, you know, in, in a bar, uh, in a club, on a park bench, in, in a place like this, you sit down with that person, 
and you court the way we did 100,000 years ago. You smile the same way, you laugh the same way, you listen the same way, you parade the same way. Courtship, I mean, is changing, but love can't and won't. So I love the optimism that is in both of your books and that you're describing here in the sense of the fundamental drive, how much has not changed, how because a technology seems new to us, it seems more transformative than if we think of it in a context of what previous, to your point about the automobile, changed, or to just the mobility of people, to Eric's point. But let's talk about a couple of technologies that do seem to at least have the potential to be disruptors in not a positive way. One of the things that I could imagine would be problematic about a technology like Tinder is if fundamentally what people in the main want and what society wants for people is to not just find someone that they're sexually attracted to, but find someone that they can form a commitment with in an environment in which you kind of have infinite options. So it's like there always might be someone better looking or better for you. Does that work against the idea of making a commitment? Yes, it does. That's the biggest problem in dating today, and all of the dating sites know it. It's called cognitive overload. Uh, you get so many choices that you choose none at all. And in fact, I've been studying this recently, and it appears to me <clears throat> that the brain has a sort of a sweet spot. And that, but you can cope with about five to nine choices. And after that, we watch on match. The longer you stay on and just talk to somebody, the less and less likely you are to ever meet them. So I say that's the one thing that I, a couple of things that I say to, to people who are out um, dating. After you've met nine people who are even reasonably appropriate for you, pick one and get to know that person better. Because the more you get to know somebody, all our data shows that, the more you get to know somebody, the more you like them, the more you think that they are like you. And in fact, in this Singles in America study, we ask them, um, we ask a million questions, but the bottom line is we ask, have you ever initially found somebody not at all attractive who you eventually fell madly in love with? And 35% of people say yes. So that's the biggest you problem. Know, we, we, we did a version Build of that. Build on that, because yeah. I know that that's something that you well, guys yeah, looked at, too. We did a version too. of that on, on our subreddit, where we got yeah. you know, thousands of people to, to just tell us their stories about all kinds of things. And one of them was, you know, describe, have you ever gotten attracted to someone and fallen in love with someone you weren't initially attracted to? And the intensity of the romantic attachment people described in those scenarios was far greater than what we saw elsewhere. Um, you did this idea, so, so our book is not exactly a, a kind of how-to guide, but we did take seriously this, this paradox of choice problem. You know, we all owe a lot to the psychologist Barry Schwartz and Dashina Yangar, uh, who did these terrific studies about the, the, the problem of having too many options, right? And the, the problem is we think uh, that having all these options is going to be a wonderful thing, but it turns out that first, if we have 24 or 20,000 options, it's very difficult to choose which one we want, right? We, we know this from the classic study of JAM that Sheena did, but we also can apply it very easily to the world of dating. But then there's this other point, which is that once we do choose somebody, if we are thinking about the 100 people we've just swept life left on, once, we, once we're with that person we've chosen, we can't help but stop thinking about what the other options might be. So we're very quick to give up on someone. Like we talk to people who would find someone on Tinder and on the taxi ride to the Tinder date, they would be on Tinder looking for other people. And then after 10 minutes on the date, 
they would go to the bathroom to, to, to get back on Tinder and see what happened. The real point of our book was to make everybody who's jealous of their young people uh, for having all these options realize that they had it better. Uh, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that's totally true. But, but so, 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 we, we, so we didn't do a how-to book, but, but we, you know, we did come up with what we came away with as we, we called it the, maybe you probably studied it in your um, psychology classes, the, um, the flow rider theory of acquired likability through repetition. Do you remember that? From, <laughs> so it's, it's, it, it, it speaks to this point, which is that you know, fundamentally people are like flow rider songs. Uh, sorry, I forgot we're in Aspen. Um, like the Beach Boys. Uh, so people are like Beach Boys. So you, know, like, you, you, you hear the song the first time, and you think like, oh God, there's another Beach Boys song. They all sound the same. And then like 10, 10 times after you've listened to it, you're like, the Beach Boys have done it again. This song is amazing. Uh, and, and, and the research does show this. If, if people have repeated experiences with someone who's in the ballpark of someone they'd like, they'd, they find the particular things about that person that are more attractive. And those things don't come off very well. Uh, if we're just looking at images and how hot someone is. But wait a minute. The brain is like a sleeping cat. And the moment you, uh, I mean, the, this brain system for romantic love is like a sleeping cat. And the moment it's triggered, you don't see the others. In fact, we know uh, there's brain regions, uh, uh, you know, linked with decision making. And they begin to shut down when you fall in love with somebody. So after a while, your brain is going to triumph over that, oh, maybe they got a better idea here. Maybe we could find somebody else. Maybe on the way to the bathroom, I'll find someone with blonde hair and not black hair. Da, 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 da. The brain doesn't work that way. Once you find it, you begin to X out everything else and begin to see you know, this. The negativity bias goes away. There's a whole brain region linked with looking for what's not right here. Yeah. And when building you on, just building there. on that point, I was talking to... Uh... But that brain region shuts down. Yes. And you begin to think positively. It's called positive illusions. You and, overlook what you don't like and focus on and, what you're doing. And just reinforcing that point, I was talking to um, uh, the founder of something called the Family Institute that is arguably the leading uh, practitioner of both couples counseling and they've built a, actually an international database about what kinds of therapeutic interventions help couples, uh, Bill Pinsoff in anticipation of having this conversation with Eric and Helen. And I was asking him from his practical experience some of these questions. And he definitely echoed the point that you just made, Helen, which is that he said that he has almost never in his practice seen that technologies in the broadest sense have been the cause of infidelities. Although he said two things that I thought were interesting. One was, he has seen almost always that it is technologies that revealed the infidelities, Interesting. right? Interesting. Which we can talk about the percentage. I think it's 35% now of people who've sexted, so we can talk about that in a minute. Um, but also, That's not the first generation, by the way. We did it with brownie cameras in the 1960s. Well, and, but, <laughs> and, and, I, and I want to come back to that. But they didn't go all over the world. Yes, I want to come back to that. That's the issue. I know, you th I know that there's this school of thought that it's really just a continuum from Polaroid cameras to home videos to sexting. But the other point you made that I thought was interesting was that uh, they have found that in therapeutic situations, sometimes the smartphone itself is an interrupter. So sort of another form of interruptus. And <laughs> I wanted to ask you both to speak about this a little bit because more than just this issue of choosing and staying with a mate, is this just issue of humor interaction, right? So I think it's seven and a half hours a day now on average an American spends in front of a screen. 
Somebody last night was mentioning to me there was a piece in the New York Times that suggested that 30% of people said that the first thing they did after intimacy was check their smartphone, and 20% of people said they actually did it during intimacy. <laughs> and this idea that we're losing this capacity to interact in real time in human engagement, which is the overarching environment in which we form our pair bonds. So let me say at the outset that I'm a very great skeptic of the idea that because we carry these devices around with us, where I, I noticed you didn't like leave it. I needed at the it chair. as a prop oh, for okay. this very sketch. Uh, uh, but 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 I really am a skeptic that carrying these things around. The, the idea that carrying these things around means that we have lost our capacity for conversation or for empathy. Uh, there have been arguments that. Uh, our use of social media and these phones have made us more isolated, have made us more lonely, uh, and they are not borne out by any serious evidence. And it's important that we get that straight. Uh, it's, it's scaremongering, I think, and it's based largely on... Or it's that we weren't very good and I, anyway. And I, and I will tell you something else, that you find that story with the advent of every new communications technology. Mm -hmm. It is so predictable that when a, a great new communications technology comes out, the leading opinion journals of the day will feature high-profile public you know, essays uh, decrying this transformation. Uh, it's a cliche. So I, I, I don't believe that we have lost our failure to connect. However, um, I do believe that we now do so many things through these machines. It was seven and a half hours a day that we spent in front of screens a couple years ago. Surely it's more, more now. now. Um, uh, what Aziz and I wrote in the book is that if you're a single person and you're carrying a smartphone in, with you, you essentially have a 24-7 singles bar in your pocket, right? <laughs> like it, it used to be that you would go to specific places at specific times to try to meet someone. Uh, now you, you pull out your phone at any moment and you can look for uh, Jewish people in your zip code. Uh, and you have a pretty good chance to find it if you're in Aspen. So, um, so, 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 um, you know, so, so, I, so, so I think that that's difficult. And I think there's another thing, which is that like, when we talk to people about their relationships with their phones, uh, I'm sorry, we, we're going to disagree about the locked-in idea here, because what so many people told us is that you know, unless they were sitting across the table from a person they had met and were in the process of falling in love with, like in that six-week period, uh, it, it's very six difficult. This is very. This is just. This is just for entertainment purposes here. What I'm saying is, unless they just, unless you've just met someone and you're in the that intense process of forming bonds of romantic love. Uh, there, there are very few situations in which you can find yourself uh, in which you're not tempted to pull out your phone and look to see if something uh, novel or surprising or potentially erotic, not just in the sexual sense, but in the charge with life sense, is happening in your machine. So you don't raise your hands for this one, but ask yourself, how many times since this incredible session started, you've pulled out your phone just to see what's out there, uh, how often you've done that in interactions, uh, whether it's with your child on a playground or when you're on a date with someone or when you're with your old friends who you don't get to see very often or working on. No, no, hold on, I'm going to finish this. So I do think, so I do, I do think that 
the, tempt, the, the, the temptation to go to the phone can pull us away from, from, from depth in moments, and that can also pull us away from depth in relationships, which is intimacy. Now, it can do the reverse. We can use these machines to get very deep with new people or with people we're with. There was an incredible New Yorker story about an app in Korea called Between that couples use. They, only the two people in the couple can post things in the app, images, stories, videos. It becomes a device for romance. So technology need not lead us to superficiality. I don't believe that. But I really do think that we are reorienting our relationship to the world and to each other because we carry these wherever we go. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's show features sociology professor and co-author of Modern Romance, Eric Kleinenberg, Hatch Beauty Chairwoman, Christy Hefner, and Helen Fisher, a best-selling author and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. Here's Helen Fisher. So I study singles, um, and um, uh, what we're seeing is the evolution of new rules and new taboos of dating. And among the new taboos is that 70% of singles do not want you to use your cell phone while on a date. Um, there's a whole lot of other taboos. We're just in the beginning of using these cells. We're just in the beginning of this new courtship world. And all kinds of taboos and rules really are developing. Um, but I'd like to say one other thing. You know, we always hear about... Um, uh, I studied every year, and over 50% of Americans have had a friends with benefits relationship. Over 50% have had a, uh, a one-night stand. Uh, uh, over 50% of Americans have lived with somebody long-term before they uh, marry. And uh, Americans think that is reckless. And then I stumbled on a statistic that, um, that has changed my view entirely of the future, which is that 67% of people who are living long-term with somebody in America today are living long-term before they marry because they are terrified of divorce. They're terrified of the social, the economic, the financial uh, fallout of divorce. And so I came to realize that I think that we are trying to get to know every single thing about a person before we tie the knot. You learn a lot between the sheets in your one-night stand. You move into uh, friends with benefits even before you tell friends and relatives. You get to know a great deal more. You, might, uh, you live with them long term. And I thought to myself, okay, if so many people, there's this an extension of the pre-commitment stage where marriage used to be the beginning of a relationship, now it's the finale. And because of that, perhaps a lot of bad relationships can end before you tie the knot. And maybe we're going to go on to see more happy marriages. And so I studied 1,100 married people in America. And I asked them a lot of questions. But among those questions was, would you remarry the person that you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. So in many respects, I'm really actually quite positive about the future. And I think that technology is enabling us to do this long-term pre-commitment stage so that we get to know the person. And by the time we're walking down the aisle, we know what we want, we got what we want, and we plan to stay with what we want. And what, when I ask Americans whether they think their marriage will last, 89% think they will. All right, so let's talk about sort of the two social constructs, the single people, the married people. So Helen's been talking about her optimism regarding marriage. And it's certainly possible when you look at the percentage of marriages that end to not be optimistic. And you can look at 
statistics from other countries in Europe where the rate of people being married has been pretty precipitously declining and pose the question of, you know, is, is marriage itself a norm that in another generation or so is going to be rare? But there is this strong equal pressure on the percentage of people who remarry or the percentage of people who believe that they will stay married or want to be married. We're very, and, ho we're very hopeful people. And then, and then we have the going solo. Then, then we have this growing contingent of singles and single people navigating in this new world of technologies and intimacy. So Helen spoke a little bit about the marital piece of it. Eric, speak a little bit about the singles piece of it. Sure, and, and one thing that's important is that this change you described, you, I think you said some really interesting things there. It's not, it's not, it's, 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 it's not just a technological thing. Um, in fact, this, you know, one of the great demographic shifts of the last 50 years uh, is that whereas people used to marry in their early 20s, now the average age of first marriage is 29 for men and it's 27 for women and it's in the over 30 in major metropolitan areas that feed you know, the Aspen Institute with the people who come to these events. Um, so, 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 so there's this whole period of life that we never had before. Um, sociologists call it emerging adulthood or you know, extended adolescence. Um, Aziz calls it the period of life where people are just dicking around having brunch. Uh, uh, so, 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 so that, that really changes the, you know, the way that we meet each other. And, um, you know, wh whereas we used to marry people in our neighborhood, so we had a lot of information about them, right? So if I marry Ted, um, which I couldn't do 80 years ago, but could do now, um, uh, you know, I knew Ted's brother and his parents, and so, and we were likely had the same ethnicity and a lot of other things in common. Well, for whereas millions of years if, they had that too, don't forget. You sure. met that cute boy at the waterhole. You didn't know him, but your father knew his brother. Okay, it's so, very so, natural to so, know a so, lot but, about but somebody. But what that suggests is that the shift that we're entering into is, is significant in other ways as well. We have this stage of life, this age of independence, where we in our 20s and 30s are free of parental control, and we can make our own decisions about who to marry, but we're marrying into a higher level of uncertainty. And so the shift in who we marry, even cross-ethnic or interracial relationships, really spikes long before the advent of the internet and online dating. It spikes when we create emerging adulthood, when we have this new period of life, right? And so we are spending a lot of time doing this, but also what's changed, uh, it's changed faster in Europe, but it's changing here as well, is that, uh, and we'll t I have a session this afternoon, you know, we're gonna talk much more about this, uh, but th there is no longer one uh, legitimate life path for each of us that involves getting married and having children till, till death do us part. Uh, we have blown up that model. And so while there is still a stigma around being a single guy in your 40s who's never married, or a single woman, uh, childbearing years, uh, you know, who's single, uh, and maybe not going to have children, there's still some stigma. It's so much less than it used to be. When University of Michigan psychologists surveyed Americans in 1957, they found that 85% of Americans thought that, that uh, adult women who were single were either sick, neurotic, or immoral. And, and, and our views have changed so much on this that American social scientists can't even ask that question with a straight face. So you know, we, we really have a whole new set of, of pathways for, for how we'll live our lives. And I think it's sensible for people, it's sensible that people are, are, are spending so much time getting to know each other first, 
But then, maybe we'll talk about this next a little bit, marriage, ent we enter marriage, we enter a committed relationship, and that turns out to be another adventure entirely. Because what we're looking for in a marriage is now also very different than what we used to look for in a marriage. So we're, let me ask a follow-up. Can I build on that one a bit? In one second, because I, yeah. I want you to add one thing that I think will be of interest to the audience, which is about the impact of women going to work hmm. and specifically the dramatic transformation in terms of how women perceive who they are interested in and willing to marry. And then I want to turn to Helen. Yeah, so, 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 so sociologists have gotten really taken with this idea about the inequality in marriage that you know, we're, we're starting to see marriage become a more exclusive institution, uh, you know, people marrying others from their same class group. Uh, so, we're, so, so there's a way in which marriage, to the extent that it is surviving and flourishing today, uh, is really a creature of uh, more affluent uh, people. Uh, and, and that means we're pooling resources and families in a way that's exacerbating inequality. That's, that's a real issue. Um, uh, you know, th there is another issue um, about marriage um, and, 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 and women going to work that, that I think bears on this question about technology and intimacy, and I didn't want to end the session without that, and, and it's this. You know, uh, the, the, the big one of the great social changes of the last 60 years is the rising status of women. Uh, women have gained uh, tremendously in the uh, paid labor market, uh, have gained control over their lives, over their bodies. And we know from time use studies that uh, women are spending significantly more time doing paid work than they did a few generations ago. Uh, and uh, men are spending a lot of time in paid work as well. And we also know what's incredible is that both men and women are spending significantly more time parenting their children, they're more involved in their children's lives. Um, the thing that men and women are doing much less of with their time these days is be with each other. So, so, and at the same time, we have extraordinarily high expectations about the benefits we will get from our marriages, about the intimacy uh, and, and, and sexual fulfillment we will get Finding a from soulmate. our romantic partnerships. We are not just marrying a good enough person. We're not marrying Ted. Right? We, are, we are searching for our soulmates. And then we find that it's very difficult to sustain the level of intimacy that we want when we don't spend the time that those relationships require. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that Americans would remarry the person they're with. But what I'd be really interested to know is how they feel about the quality of the relationship that they're in and whether they're getting from the marriages and relationships what they expect. Because if fear is what is keeping us together, uh, that's not a happy story. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Helen Fisher, Match.com's Chief Scientific Advisor and one of today's speakers, is also in an episode called A Bright Future for Long-Term Coupling. In it, she explains why humans fall in love and form pair bonds when the science is against them. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in iTunes. Now back to today's episode. Here's Fisher. We're talking about technology and the power of technology to make changes, and certainly this slow love, this long period of commitment. But just like you, your particular interest in women, 
there's no force as powerful as the force of women piling into the job market in cultures around the world. And in fact, you know, for millions of years, we lived in these little hunting and gathering groups. Women were commuted to work. They came home with 60 to 80% of the evening meal. The double income family was the standard. Women were regarded as just as economically and socially and sexually powerful as men. Then we settle down on the farm. Men's jobs become much more important. Uh, women get secondary jobs, and we see the rise of all kinds of beliefs about what a man is and what a woman is. I mean, the virginity at marriage that's going. Uh, uh, arranged marriages is going. Um, uh, Till death do us part. The men are the head of the household. The woman's place is in the home. All of these agrarian traditions of 10,000 years are slipping away from us in one generation. We're in the middle of a marriage revolution. Um, and that's, I think, of a much larger, I mean, it's not technology, it's not slow love, it's piling women into the job market that is changing love today. And, um, you know, when we ask um, what you're looking for in a partner, well, a hundred years ago you would have said, well, I mean, or even certainly 300 years ago, you would have said, well, so I need somebody who believes in the same religion, who lives next, has a farm next door, uh, is from the same kin group, has the same political and social and economic relations. Today, when we ask what they say is, I want over 97% of singles in America today, when you ask them what they want, they want somebody who respects me, uh, somebody who I can trust and confide in, somebody who spends enough time with me, somebody who makes me laugh, and uh, somebody who I find physically attractive. We are turning inward. We are trying to please ourselves. And I think that is compatible with the ancient human spirit. Let's drill down a little bit uh, to sort of subsets because we've been talking in generalities, understandably, and in many cases quite appropriately. But I think it'd be interesting for either of you to just share from your own research and observations Differences either between men and women or between, say, millennials and baby boomers in terms of this whole subject, because I know that in each case you guys have plumbed some of that. So share a little bit of that with the audience. Well, uh, men are more romantic than women are. They fall in love sooner. Uh, they fall in love more often. Uh, when they meet somebody that they uh, uh, fall in love with, they want to introduce them to friends and family sooner. They want to move in sooner. Men tend to have more intimate conversations with their wives than women do with their husbands because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends. And men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. You know, we've spent 50 years trying to figure out. <laughs> she sort of glossed over that kind of quickly, I thought. By the way, I thought it started really well for the men in that conversation. So, Downhill. Uh, Downhill. No, I'll let you go on that one, and then I'll do millennials. <laughs> millennials is very interesting. That's just one thing about millennials. They're not near as sexual as they were in 25 years ago. Uh, um, everybody thinks they're having sex. Everybody thinks they're having less sex than the next guy, but millennials are not. On MASH.com, they don't even want me to say what I'm going to say next, which is Americans aren't having sex. Over 50% of Americans every year single Americans don't have sex during the course of the year. It depresses the president a match, you know. But anyway, about millennials... By the way, if Barry Diller is in the room, I am totally available to replace Helen anytime. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, he's a happily married man, so he's playing on you. But uh, um, uh, one of the questions that I ask every, every year in the Singles in America study is, uh, if you... 
um, would you make a long-term commitment to somebody who has every single thing you're looking for, but you're not in love with them? And then another question, would you make a long-term commitment uh, to somebody who has every single thing you're looking for, but you don't find them sexually attractive? And the least likely to make that compromise is people over 60. And the most likely are millennials, the people in their 20s. And, the, and I thought of it, why is this? But from a Darwinian perspective, the young have to find the right person to spread their DNA on into tomorrow. Those are the ones that are going to make the compromises, not the wow, older so, people. So I wouldn't go to Darwin here. I would go do my Sociology 101. Uh, and this came up in Going Solo, where, where you know, I interviewed all sorts of older people about the experience of living alone as an older person. And there was this kind of idea out there you know, that if you go to a geriatric community uh, assisted living facility, you'll find like, like the one guy you know, who's still like romantically engaged and every woman will be chasing him down, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get, but, but you know, like when I, when I did interviews with hundreds of older people and, and the women said the most interesting thing, the older women said, look, at, at this stage of my life, I am much more interested in finding someone to go out with than I am in having someone to come home to. So, so I'm not surprised that over they 60 days. Older, older well, women will not but, go but, but they also somebody but, if they don't want if, they, if the sex is not good and the love is not good. They're not going to do it. And, and this relates to the kind of going solo idea, which is which which is that um, you know, p people are are content being social in other ways. Uh, and, and not necessarily having a, a domestic partner. Obviously, uh, there's a gender That's issue. True. There's a gender issue here as well, which is that the experience of many older women who are single uh, is that they had to take care of an ailing and, in some cases, uh, uh, a dying uh, husband, uh, and they certainly don't want to have that experience again. And for all the research that tells us, kind of in an unmitigated way, that marriage is a good thing, it's good for our health. Uh, I have yet to see the study that shows that if you're a woman over the age of 55, that getting remarried is necessarily a better thing for your outcomes. There's a lot of suffering and pain that can come with being in that caretaking uh, role. So I do think I think that's you know that's an important part of the story as well. You had asked about um, millennials mm -hmm. uh, uh, compared to others, and it's interesting. Um, uh, you know, obviously there's this search. Um, for the, for the right person. But I will say that um, we, we write about this in, the, in Modern Romance a, a bit too. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, surveys showed that about three quarters of American women were willing to marry someone that they didn't love. When was this? In the 1960s. As recently uh, as the 60s. Uh, yeah. and, and today, fewer than 10% of women say that they will marry someone they don't love. So, we, so, so women really do have a very different expectation about what they're going to get uh, from a marriage. Uh, and I think that, that that high bar is related to the legitimacy of a life in which you have other kinds of intimate relationships, but you don't necessarily get married. On, to, uh, on another thing with millennials, I want to break down that category a little bit because it turns out um, you know, people are so, we've talked a little bit about the exploding norms around the way that we uh, meet each other, the way we interact, the way we're in relationships. It also uh, is true for the way that we break up. And the, and the norms are evolving so quickly that we even see differences uh, within generations, people five years. So, so for instance, like there's this whole question if you talk to young people, uh, is it, how would you feel about someone uh, breaking up with you by text? Uh, and, and so, like, if you ask a 30-year-old 
Uh, would you ever break up with someone by text? They'll say, that, no, that, that, that is a line that I will not you know, cross. There's decency in the world. You know, sure, I do it on email. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but no chance would I ever break up with someone on text. Then, then you talk to the 25-year-olds, and the 25-year-olds would say, Look, I know it's a shitty thing to do, but the truth is, you know, we do everything by text, and there are, we're, everyone's busy. Uh, our, our whole relationship is texting anyway. You know, if you use the right emoji. Uh, so, so I will admit that I, I have occasionally done it. Then you talk to 20-year-olds, and you talk to this woman, she's like, oh my god. It is my dream to have a man who would break up with me by text. Like, I, I, I'm dating this, well, I'm not sure if I'm dating this guy. Like, I haven't heard from him in a few months. I, I, I'm not sure if we're together or if we've broken up. If, if we, I wish you would just text me that it's over. So, 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 so we really do see, you know, this incredible shift in the way that people expect to have interactions. Eric Kleinenberg teaches sociology at New York University and wrote the book Modern Romance with comedian Aziz Ansari. Helen Fisher is a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and Christy Hefner is the former CEO of Playboy Enterprises. Their conversation about technology's toll on intimacy was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June 2016. In the next part of the show, audience members ask the speakers questions. Here's the first one. You're talking about intimacy in romantic love. Uh, there's a sense of intimacy in business where people engage with one another. And yet, due to WebEx, video conferencing, uh, and globalization with people in different areas, far fewer direct engagements happen. Mm -hmm. Would you comment on that, please? That's really interesting. Uh, I'm trying to bring all of what I understand into the brain into studying uh, business as opposed to love. In fact, I'm a little sick of love. I've been doing it for 40 years. And, uh, uh, not personally, but, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, I, I, I think that's a real point. Do you have anything to say? Well, only that we should look at both sides of it, right? And so just as with romance, where it used to be the case that we'd marry our neighbors, uh, you know, business has obviously grown from being a very local to a much more global affair. And what that probably means for uh, organizations is that you have the capacity to integrate talent, uh, to, to make deals, uh, to work on projects uh, with really extraordinary people in many different places. Uh, and so it's true that you might not have the same uh, uh, depth of uh, interaction, and that could be a cost to the intimacy you experience. There might be other kinds of advantages and other network ties that you build. So I, I want us to think about this not just in terms of, like, well, is it good or bad, uh, but to think a little bit more analytically uh, about the, the changing nature of our relationship. So when we give up something for, uh, that becomes a little bit less deep, it might be the case that we're getting some more breadth. I, think I would just a good add point. One, one good point about that is it's the, sort of the in the loss of local community and the extension of, of community and you know we did evolve in things where we did need local community we did do need that regular interaction um, but just like you said there's a there's a great side to this that you can interact with people maybe on a more shallow level but get the work done and that's what business is about. I would just add that if we live in a world that is both a high tech 
but also a high-touch world. And in a high-tech world, the high-touch takes on even more meaning. So in a simple example, I think in a world in which we can all text and email, a handwritten thank you note has more power and meaning than it did before we had that other way to connect. So if we keep that in mind, I think that that's the way to get the best of both worlds. Um, I can, I'm older generation, obviously. We have young children, and they are... How young is young? Uh, okay, so I've got a 30-year-old, and I've got a 25-year-old. Okay. <laughs> All right. I think All that's right. a relative term here, right. but go ahead. <laughs> so I've got, I, I, think, I think they're... Really young. I think they're past millennial. I think that they're that other one. But I am, uh, and I know we're just in the beginning of the electronic relationship, but I have seen, um, I do think it is changing the intimacy level, watching my children, because they think it's okay to do certain things to, uh, you know, on their little screens, which you wouldn't even think of doing in person. And so I think it's totally changing how people become intimate. I think that, the, I think the panelists would agree with you on that, that, that there are modes of communication and the ability to, on the one hand, become intimate, and on the other hand, to not be personal, that are changing that dynamic. But there's another thing here, too, just to try to um, understand you know, where your children and that generation is coming from. Uh, you know, we've asked a great deal of them. We put them in a, in a very difficult bind. So I grew up in uh, downtown Chicago. I uh, was born in 1970, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s when, like, statistically speaking, it was a very dangerous place compared to cities today and Chicago today. Uh, and my memory is that when school let out at 2.45, uh, I was um, off with my friends, like somewhere in a one-mile radius or six-block radius about my house, I did, around my house. I didn't have a cell phone. There was no way to know where I was. I was just kind of roaming around with my friends, uh, doing things in person, because that's how you did things, in our free time. And, and Chicago is much, much more dangerous than it is today. When I talk to people who live in my neighborhood, my old neighborhood, or when I look at the way that my friends raise their children in New York or in suburbs today, uh, nothing like that happens. The idea that your kids would be roaming, young kids would be roaming the streets of the city, very, very safe places for hours is insane. You would probably be arrested uh, if you did that. And everyone is, is totally scheduled all the time. And so the one place that we have given our children for spontaneous interaction where they can be with their friends is this, or the thing that they, the, 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 the computer they have at home. And so they have created a world of relationships in these machines that we took for granted because we had the freedom to pursue them on sidewalks and streets, right? And so then they, they, they have these, these full lives there and they have all kinds of communication, which I now know, having spent the last couple of years trying to understand them, we will never really understand. Uh, th there's so much going on there. And we feel as if they have lost the capacity for intimacy and connection. So I do think there are things that, that make it hard to get deep on the internet. I've talked about this problem of distraction. But I'm not at all sure that because our kids are spending so much time with their devices, uh, they have lost the capacity to connect with one another. I think more likely they've found their own way to do it. Um, hi, I'm Leah. I write about mostly people my age engagement with sex and romance so i know we've talked a lot about millennials but as a millennial i'm kind of curious you guys talked a lot about um like how technology 
introduces us to one another and can serve in a, like somewhat in breakups. But I mean, I've experienced like what you said seemed a little bit generalizing, like technology and communication is super nuanced and there's so much decoding going on, whether it's over texting or email or Snapchat or Instagram. So I was wondering if you could speak, and that has a huge impact on relationships, whether committal or non-committal within the span of the actual relationship, not just the introduction and the ending. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the positives, negatives, or wherever you fall on the spectrum of that technological decoding and the role of relationships, uh, the role of technology in relationships while they are occurring. I personally am a single person, and there's all kinds of things that I would say on email that I don't actually have the courage to say to somebody uh, in person. And so I find it as an extra avenue to express various things that I find it a very useful addition to my regular interactions during a relationship. What I, what I was going to say is two things that came from, again, the conversation I was having with the Family Institute founder. And one was that he finds in couples therapy, one of the issues that sometimes isn't understood that needs to be addressed is whether both parties have the same view of what the sphere of privacy is. So if one partner is posting certain kinds of photographs, and I'm not talking about sexting, I'm talking about just whatever photographs, and the other party feels that that actually is invading a sphere that is their intimate private family sphere, that's a problem. And because of the ease with which one can share through technologies, I think that's an issue that probably didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, the other is, I think to Helen's point, that there are forms of communication and that to some degree even texting can be a kind of contemporary form of love letters because we often will express things in words that are not said orally more than we feel comfortable when we're with the person. So I think I operate on the assumption that they can be enabling tools to relationships, but they also can be challenges that have to be navigated within relationships. And back to your first point at the very outset of our conversation, the truth is that we do everything with these machines. We, we, so much of our interaction is through devices uh, that everything is happening there. And so all these kinds of nuances that you're describing, they were there in relationship interactions 25, 50, 100, 2,000 years ago, right? Just, just through other media. So I think we've just transferred a lot of that nuanced, uh, you know, very particular kind of stuff onto these new devices. What was so fascinating for Aziz and for me uh, when we talked to couples about uh, how they organize their relationship uh, at this moment is, uh, you know, we, we thought people would have all sorts of frustrations with monogamy and want to talk about, to us about infidelity, things like that, but actually people wanted to talk about how they manage their joined digital lives. So, so some really basic questions about norms came up. So, you know, you're, you're, you're with your partner and uh, uh, an image pops up on her cell phone. Can you look at it? Uh, is it okay to go into her Facebook and see who she's interacting with? Um, right? Why does that guy Bob keep texting over and over again and asking her wh where she is and why she's not at the hotel? The Those kinds of tough questions. <laughs> Those tough questions. I know we're out of time, but I mean, if you could figure out the answer to that question, uh, you would really have something. So it's obvious that we could spend a great deal more time, but I'm being told we don't have any more time. Please join me in thanking you. Eric Kleinenberg is the director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University and co-wrote the best-selling book, Modern Romance. Helen Fisher is the chief scientific advisor for Match.com. 
She's also a best-selling author. They were interviewed by Christy Hefner, who is chair of the company Hatch Beauty and former CEO of Playboy Enterprises. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.